Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Bible time. If you need a copy of God's Word, please put a hand up and volunteers are going to grab a copy and bring it to you because everybody needs a copy of the Bible when we do Bible time so you know I'm not making anything up as I have habit of doing. Everybody please turn, although it'll take us a little while to get there, everybody turn to Job chapter 42, your favorite book, no doubt. In the hardback that we're handing out, that's gonna be page 451. We're gonna be in a few different passages, but that'll be the one that we read in its entirety. The other ones are shorter, so I put them in the PowerPoint. Job chapter 42. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know that we are having a conversation church-wide right now where I'm inviting everybody into a conversation the elders have been having the last few years. What does spiritual leadership of the church family look like according to the Bible to make sure that we're doing it right? How do we make sure that we're not Bernie Madoff, where we end up taking all the money, right? How do you make sure that your spiritual leaders don't, you know, run off with the secretary or whatever? Like, there's lots of bad stuff, or people are hurting and suffering, but the leader drives a Bentley, okay? We've all seen this, unfortunately. You can see it in government leaders for sure, Um, You see it in church leaders, heaven help us. You see it in business leaders, um, where it looks more like a game of king of the mountain when you're a kid, right? Where you're clawing and scratching and you'll shove anybody to get to the top. To, To be a leader is to be at the top where you get the benefits and privileges. Jesus came along and said, No, leading is about serving. It's about washing feet. So it's critical that we have this discussion. Um, But there's been, the last couple of weeks, an elephant in the room messing up that nice table and chairs that you set out to impress your guests. And you had truffles on that table and you're upset about it, I know. The elephant in the room is, and it wasn't an elephant that I brought into the room, it's Jesus' fault. It's Paul's fault. The elephant in the room is, as I've read through 1 Timothy 3, or Titus 1, or the list of the apostles, Paul doesn't seem to hesitate in any regard to use masculine pronouns when he describes an elder candidate. He, 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 he. And you're sitting there going, well, Paul didn't graduate from Sac State. And then he does it again in Titus 1 talking about who should be an elder candidate. He, 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 he. And then you go, well, maybe Paul just wasn't very enlightened. Let's go over to Jesus. Jesus was awesome. He picked 12, oh no, 12 dudes. Right? What do we do with that? You got to stop and have the conversation. The, the, my concern personally 20th and now 21st century Western Christianity 
is that we're so busy watching television, we're usually not even having a conversation. We don't, don't have informed opinions one way or the other. We know exactly what happened in the next season of Who Slaughtered Who, but we've actually not, right? We, we've had conversations, oh, you should do your Bible reading plan, you know, bi- read a Bible in a year. And we'll go through texts where there are masculine pronouns all the way through describing church leaders and might be super offended or might go, oh, I don't know, that was back then. Or might have some internal thought or internal storming of the heart, but never have a conversation as a family and go, what do we do with that? But since we are people of the book, insert amen here. Since we are people of the book, let's talk about it. And in fact, in case you know, I know a bunch of you have just joined the family here in the last year or two. Um, The last time we had a major revision of the bylaws was nine years ago. The 2012 revision of the bylaws, um, we went from three boards down to one. And in that revision, we decided on male eldership. So this has been there already, but it's important that we teach why are we doing this? The question uh, stated in words, why does foundation have Male elders, foundation, soon to be foundation, ARCF, why do we have male eldership? And here's my premise. It's already printed out in your sermon notes. Did anybody not get sermon notes who wants them? We're going to pass them out if, if you want them. Do you have sermon notes? Okay. Here's the deal. And here, here's why I'm not willing to just, I, I, don't, uh, I don't want the tail to wag the dog. The issue of male eldership is not an issue of male eldership. It is of biblical illiteracy. Okay? Or let me spell it another way. We do not know our Bibles, and we're really lousy at letting God be God. Okay? And I said we, because I'm, I, sign me up. I, I am a card-carrying member of Christians who are really lousy at letting God be God anonymous. If that's a club, I, like, founded it. Okay? There are so so many realities, but we're going to dial in on four. There are four realities that if we're not careful, we're going to get wrong. These four that we're going to talk about today undermine God's design for healthy church leadership. What are the four? I'm glad you asked. Gender, leadership, God's authority, and God's love. And what I'm going to submit to you today is if you have never, ever been to church, if you have never ever opened a Bible before, these four things are wonky in your mind to say the least. Not only never met Jesus, you don't really have Christian friends, you've never read a Bible, you've never been to church. We do not know what a boy is anymore, we do not know what a girl is anymore. Okay? I'm not railing at anybody, I'm not mad at anybody. My heart is breaking for people, okay? The Christian response to to a lack of knowing God and the truth that flows from him, it it should be pity and compassion, right? We're not angry at anybody. We don't understand gender anymore. Leadership, as I just explained, we have it totally backwards. God told us how the world does leadership, but leadership the way Jesus told us is upside down. It's servanthood. God's authority, are you kidding me? We're having discussions about whether we even think God exists, let alone is he in charge, and that's preposterous. God's love, again, we're having discussions about whether we think God even exists, let alone is he loving. And then for sure the culture's having discussions like, 
I would never believe in a God who doesn't allow me to do what I want. Surely he's not a loving God if he ever tells me no, said every three-year-old to every mother ever. We're going to build entire world philosophy. My entire identity is going to be built around what a three-year-old believes. I won't believe in a God who doesn't just give me what I want. Yikes. And again, I'm not judging you if you believe that. I would think that way too if Jesus had not smacked me upside the head once upon a time. In a good way. And the Holy Spirit changed my heart. Okay? Aside from the truth of Scripture revealed by the Holy Spirit... These four things are going to be completely wonky in our minds and in our hearts. But my premise today is that, and this is the dangerous part, is that saying that somebody far from God getting these wrong, that's easy. It's not scary, uh, and it doesn't call a Christian church to action. It is so easy. We could get here together and say, okay, all or most of us are Christian. Those people out there are confused. Let's close in prayer. That doesn't call us to any kind of action. I'm going to do something far more dangerous today. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to submit to you that even though we may have access to truth out of Scripture on these four things, our Bibles might be a little more dusty than we're willing to admit, and we might be more influenced by the world on these four issues than we want to admit. That's the painful part. And so, by God's grace, what I'm hoping is As we walk through these four things briefly, what I'm hoping is the Lord will show us the ways that as scripture shows us that these four areas, man, I really need to trust the Lord in these four areas. Here's where he's revealed truth in these four areas. God's not going to have to, you know, like Paul doesn't stop in the middle of 1 Timothy 3 and say, man, I really need to explain to 21st century Californians why male eldership's a good idea. Do you know, Paul, Paul doesn't stop and interrupt himself to deal with your issues and my issues? Did you notice that? In Titus 1, he does not anticipate your junk and my junk about male eldership. He doesn't. Because the whole of Scripture subverts your junk and my junk. The more we study all of Scripture, we're going to get these four things right, and we will not bring our mess to the table. Does that make any sense? We, we hear things that God's not saying. We he, that, that's all communication, by the way. Any married folks want to just straight up? A fight started because I heard something my wife didn't say. <laughs> she did not say that, but I heard it, and we had a fight. Yeah. We call that a Tuesday in the Kaiser household. <laughs> that's all the time. So... The, that's, that's, that's my thesis for today. I'm trying to get us, I'm going to show us in scripture what God is actually doing so that we will stop hearing what God didn't say. Okay? That's, that's what we're going to try to do today. All right. Other than that, this will be easy. Okay. Number one for you note takers. When a scripture shaped church, because that's one of two options, right? What's the other option? ARCF. A culture-shaped church would be the other option, right? When a scripture-shaped church gets gender right, men and women receive permission to be different without threatening their equality. It's the only way to be equal, the only way to be different without threatening, threatening equality is Genesis 1. It is the only thing offered 
in all of philosophy, on all of planet Earth, everything in Google, anywhere you could go. The only thing that allows genders to be different from each other and still be completely equal. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. What's the us? Ah, that's a Bible study for another day. Make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. Wow. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. So I'm pretty sure we just received a foundation for why racism is evil. Did you hear what I just heard? Human beings are made in the image of God. You can't do the Holocaust because you can't say Jews are less valuable than us, right? So I don't need to preach against the Holocaust. I need to preach Genesis 126, 127. I'm subverting all of it. I don't need to rage against sexism and say, women are just as valuable as men. I shouldn't even have to say that. I just need to preach Genesis 1. I'm I'm subverting all of it. God created human beings in his own image. And I shouldn't have to say you're more valuable than a pig or a donkey or a monkey or a potted plant. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them Male and female, and five other things we haven't discovered yet. But the 21st century people are really, really smart, so just wait. He created... No! We're not smarter than God. We want to be, because we got trust issues. In April 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. The next day, Jane Elliott, an elementary school teacher in Iowa, said, this, is, this racism stuff has got to stop. We've got to do something. And she had been thinking for a long time about trying a, an experiment with the kids in her classroom. So she tried an experiment where at the start of the day, she put a brown handkerchief around the necks of all of the kids with blue eyes. After a 10-minute long lecture about how kids with blue eyes were dumb, and they were mean, and they didn't listen to instructions, and they didn't obey their parents, and every little mistake that a blue-eyed kid made throughout the morning She'd point out the mistake and say, see, she has blue eyes. See how she can't do anything. And just constantly reinforced and made the blue-eyed kids sit at the back of the classroom. Gave the blue-eyed kids stricter punishment, made them miss recess for the smallest thing. And by the end of recess, within about a two, two and a half hour period from the beginning of instruction, the rest of the kids were treating the blue-eyed kids very mean. Very, very short period of time. And at lunch, after lunch, she decided to switch everything. She had the blue-eyed kids remove their handkerchiefs, talked a little bit about their experience of what it felt like, and she said, actually, guys, I read this report wrong. 
It's the green-eyed kids that are dumb. The green-eyed kids disobey their parents. They're mean. They don't listen to instruction. She gave the whole spiel against the green-eyed kids and made them wear the handkerchief to visually identify. Made them sit at the back of the classroom, pointed out all of their faults throughout the lessons that happened through the afternoon. And sure enough, by afternoon recess, everybody's treating the green-eyed kids terribly and reinforcing what the teacher had said. Yikes is my clinical response. So it can be taught. And it can be taught in a couple of hours. Whoa. Huh. So when she debriefed with the kids, she's obviously not trying to teach the kids to hate each other in the end. Her debrief is the exact opposite of that. Hey, how did it feel? It did not feel good to be singled out for something that has nothing to do with your character whatsoever, right? Something you can't control. In the end, does she abolish eye color? Yeah. That wasn't the point. The point was to change people's perspective, to change people's behavior. The point wasn't to abolish eye color. You don't abolish gender to get men and women to treat each other well. You don't abolish eye color to get people of different eye colors to treat each other well. You don't abolish race to get people of different races to treat each other well. You don't abolish nations to get people of different nations to treat each other well. She may not know this, but as Christians we know this. Sin is the problem. The problem's called sin. The scriptures are the only thing that allow us to go, huh, the genders can still be different from each other. And that doesn't threaten their equality. Because a sovereign God with the authority to say so said I created humanity and I created them in two equal halves. He said so. And they together reflect my glory. He said so. And he had the authority to say so. There's so much safety in that. We don't have to thumb wrestle each other over who's better than... Goodness gracious. Second thing we need to undercut... When a scripture-shaped church, not a culture-shaped one, when a scripture-shaped church gets leadership right, those that follow are set free from fear of domination. Those that follow are set free from the fear of domination. Jesus said it this way. Calls them together after two of the twelve send their mom to do their dirty work and ask for positions of authority in the kingdom. It was totally shady. Story for another day. Jesus says this, you know that the rulers in this world, Herod, Caesar Augustus, Bill Gates, lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. I love that he said it will be. He didn't say it might be. He didn't suggest it. It wasn't a pep talk. He just, he's in charge, right? Right? 
it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. This is very strong language. This, is, this gives safety to all of us. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your, what's that word? Goodness gracious, could he, could he be any more clear? Wow. For even the Son of Man, if you're new to church, that's a term he uses for himself, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's referencing his own cross. So if he's going to the cross to serve, to save and to serve his church, he is setting the example for what leadership is like in the kingdom of God. That's what leadership is supposed to look like. This is where Christians, if we're going to be shaped by what God says and not by how the world has taught us leadership works, we're going to be more marked by the words of Jesus right here and we're going to be more marked by the cross because Jesus just said in this, in this last verse 28, he just said the cross is the fountainhead of all leadership. You want to know how to lead? Right? Ephesians 5 is, is saying the same exact thing when he tells a Christian man to lay down his life for his bride. It's alluding to the cross. You want to know how to lead? How's your back look? Is it, this isn't about privilege and being in charge and getting your way. You want to get your way? Run for governor. You want to get your way? Run for the House of Representatives and be really important and get rich. Like, that's not the kingdom of God. Leadership's different here. Okay? So, one day, two different flocks were all uh, cozying up to the same well. And it didn't matter that they were coming to the well at the same time because they all know their shepherd's voice. But the two flocks were intermingling. They were getting a drink. One flock had really full bellies. They were happy. They had oil for their heads. And they were chatting with each other about how great things were. But the other flock, they were looking pretty dingy and had had oil for their head in a long time. And they were hungry. So they're overhearing the other sheep talk about how great things are. Man, we love our shepherd. It's great. He takes care of us. He always makes sure we've got great pastures or whatever. And so sure enough, when one shepherd says, all right, let's go. Two flocks follow him over the hill and the other shepherd's standing there. Wait, where did everybody go? Now, it's, it's pretty silly, but here's the point. We weren't born yesterday. None of us. We know what it's like to be served. We know what it's like when the leader over us is manipulating us, using us for our benefit, using us for their pride. Anybody ever had a boss that you knew you were there for their benefit? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. <laughs> Sometimes you've had a boss that really, really, they believed in their bones. Their job was to make sure to take care of you. And if they took care of all of their people, everything was going to be good. They believed it in their bones. And they wanted to make sure everybody was good. And that looks far more like Jesus. Even though they're over you or they're in charge of you, 
they viewed it more like a stewardship. They viewed it more like, I'm a shepherd and I want to make sure the sheep are okay. And they may not have even known the Lord necessarily, but they had a good sense about them. Like, I'm going to make sure my people are okay. And they would check in with you. And maybe they didn't do it perfectly. But man, you probably loved them. You'd probably go to war with them if you needed to. They were going to make sure you were okay. And, and we've also had bosses that you existed to shine their shoes. Not shine their shoes, but shine their shoes. <laughs> you, were, you were there to go fetch them a burrito at lunchtime. There's the world's way of doing leadership. There's a kingdom way of doing leadership. And when we take our wounds and our biases from watching the world abuse each other, when we take that into the church, we're immediately going to get a little bit jumpy when somebody says, oh, did you hear we have male eldership? Because we hear privilege and we hear power. How is that not inherently sexist? If leadership is all about power and privilege and who drives a really nice car and wow, they're in charge of everything and they make all the decisions. Um, that would be sexist if it was all about power. That would be. So we're going to have to work really hard to make sure that we are listening to the words of Jesus and taking our cues from him on leadership. It's mission critical because marriage isn't going to work if we don't get this right. If we don't get this right, like, if we get this wrong, we're completely sexist in the way that we organize marriage because we're telling husbands that they're in charge of everything. No, you're not, husband. Husband, you get to do the same thing the elders do. You get to wrap a towel around your waist and you get to wash feet. That's what husband means in the Bible. <laughs> Ephesians 5. You get to wash feet. And I promise everything's going to go great. We've got to get leadership right, or male eldership is naturally going to be terrifying. It is very reasonable for it to be terrifying if you think this is a power play. Okay. Third, when a scripture-shaped church, and what's the alternative? A culture-shaped church. When a scripture-shaped church, like ARCF Foundation, like you guys, gets God's authority right, they stop asking if God is right and start asking how. This is so critical that we do this individually as well as as a family. Stop asking if God is right. This is such a faith move. Oh man, this is such a barometer, a measure of where our faith is at. We're going to stop asking if God is right. Start asking how. Now is the moment you've been waiting for. You've had your finger in Job 42 this whole time. It's sore. And you're like, when are we going to turn to Job 42? I've been yearning for a sermon from Job for three and a half years. When is Kaiser going to get to Job 42? And here we are. If you're new to church, Satan and Job have this cosmic, con I'm sorry, Satan and God have this conversation that Job knows nothing about. 
where, I mean, can't get into it too deep because we don't have the time. It just seems shady. <laughs> God just kind of seems to throw Job under the bus. He kind of does. He's like, look, if you think that Job's character isn't what I think it is, Satan, you can go ahead and do all kinds of things to him. Trust me, I know his character is amazing. <laughs> That's not a good day. You do not want to be the test subject. You're glad that God thinks so highly of your character, but you don't want to be the test subject. <laughs> so Satan is given permission to kill all ten of Job's kids in one day and take all of his physical possessions and then make his body physically sick. He's covered in sores. And his wife is faithless, tells him, just curse God and die. Be done with this. Why are you still holding on to your faith in God? Horrible stuff. And then his friends are horrible. In the whole middle of the book is Job wrestling with God, going, what, what on earth is going on? 42, verse 1. We're going to do this entire chapter. And even for our short American attention spans, even 42 makes sense. Okay. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. He's admitting, God, I am small. You are really big. You know what's going on in, in the world. And I am really small. And I shouldn't have said anything. Things far too wonderful for me. Verse 4, you said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did as the Lord commanded them. If you've got a baby boy on the way, and you were working on names. Anyway, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers, sisters, and former friends came and feasted with him in his home. And they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and a gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had more than 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. He named his first daughter. So lots going on. Lived long, full life. Okay. How on earth? Hmm. I'm not going to ask the question. We know the answer. It's because we don't read it. It's right there. We just don't read it. That's the answer. Job experiences pain. 
He experiences confusion. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't like what's going on. And he kind of rages against God. God, this isn't right. This can't be right. God, you're, you're acting like I've done something wrong, but I, I've, I've searched my heart. I just, something is amiss here, God. I really don't think I've done something wrong. I, ah, I wish you would just talk to me. I want to hear your voice. Like, what is it? And in the end, the answer, the answer where, where God kind of storms at him, no pun intended because there was a whirlwind, for, for three chapters, the answer in the end wasn't that Job was factually wrong, is that he was limited in his scope. Hey, Job, there's only so much you can understand. You're finite. It's not that you're factually wrong. It's just that you're a human. I'm up here. I can't explain to you the court of heaven. I can't explain to you what a Satan is, what an accuser is, let alone that he exists or how he works or my plan to defeat him one day. Said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Like, you can see little tidbits by faith, but like, this, this is the plane that you're operating on and you're doing a great job at it, but I'm up here. And God gave the 21st century Christians in Northern California this book for a reason. God is bigger than us, and that's good news. Really, really good news. Oh my goodness. Job knew that God was right. He just didn't know how. He knew that God was good. He just didn't know how because it hurt so bad. Anybody here ever been that spot? It hurt like hell. And you're like, I know God is good. I just, God, I don't see it right now. I know you are right. I know you don't do anything wrong. I know you don't do anything evil. God, I don't know. You, I know you don't make any mistakes, but I just can't see it right now. Brothers and sisters, that's what faith filled prayers sound like. That's what it sounds like when your soul trusts Jesus. God, I know you're on your throne. This just hurts and I can't see the way forward. I know you're with me, I just can't feel it right now. So, is God in charge? Oh, I know you're in charge. When I stumble across a text because I'm a Christian, I'm confused and I might not like its conclusions. God, this text is 100% true, irrespective of Gregory. Let me say it another way, because I didn't put it in the notes this way. When Gregory reads Paul, and Gregory doesn't like what he read, there's not a Paul problem, there's a Gregory problem. I left you out of it, so you're not offended. <laughs> Wouldn't want to offend anybody at church. It's bad form. Right? Because Paul speaks inspired by the Holy Spirit and they make it canon. And as much as I would like to think that my words are inspired, they're just not. My opinions are not. My thoughts are not. So here's what I want us to get. We can trust that the unclear parts of Scripture are true even if our understanding must grow. 
okay? Guys, this is the only humble way to approach the Bible. This is it. If you become a Christian on a Tuesday and on a Wednesday you're expecting to understand it all, you're going to be very frustrated. Especially when it's an, a holy book. It's infinite. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It could, I mean, the Bible says about itself that it can separate your soul and your spirit. If you can wrap your head around that and explain it to me, shoot me an email. You, you and I are not going to understand everything God says the first time. Like we are just too small for that. We are way too small for that. And that's okay. If we expect to understand it the first time and like it and sign off on it, then does God have any authority at all? Who's the author? Do the characters in the story get to go, hey, and then Frodo turned left down this little road and Frodo says to Tolkien, no, I don't want to turn left down this road. This is what our culture is doing right now. That's, how, that's what perverse authority is. We're yelling at the author saying no. And you're going, I don't think Frodo's supposed to yell at Tolkien. <laughs> that was weird. Was that weird? <laughs> Fourth. When a scripture-shaped church, not a culture-shaped one, gets God's love right... You can trust God's design for all areas of life. When we get God's love right, we can trust God's design for all areas of life. Listen to what Paul says toward the end of Romans 8. This is rhetorical, by the way. It, the presumptive answer is no. Can anything ever, is that pretty superlative? This is pretty broad. Can anything ever separate, and I was talking to Christians, so you've been covered in the, in the blood of Jesus. Your sins have been washed away. Can anything ever separate the church from Christ's love? Presumptive answer is no. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Or are persecuted? That's another evidence that he's talking to the church. You're only persecuted if you're representing Christ. Or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, if you came to Christ as an adult, you're off the hook for a minute. Those of us who grew up in the church, we're in trouble. I grew up, I was Monica, be happy all day long. Okay, the ones that grew up in church, we're in big trouble on this one. Because we've heard this one a thousand times. We've memorized this one perhaps. We've heard sermons on this one over and over. We've got a coffee cup with this on, okay? Where the word love gets brighter as the coffee gets hotter. <laughs> Call me a liar, you have this cup. Anyway, I'm just saying for, we're familiar. 
And yet we run across things that God says and we don't like that God said them. And we're like, I don't know. I, I thought that God loves you more than you love yourself. See, when I run into a command of God and I balk, that proves that I don't believe this verse. Okay, let's try, try this differently. Daddy's in the water, four-year-old child standing at the edge of the pool. Jump in. Daddy loves you. Daddy is strong enough. Daddy's feet are on the bottom of the pool. Jump in. It's fun. The water's great. Mm, I don't know. Are you doubting how tall I am? Are you doubting my love for you? Are you doubting my strength? Are you doubting my will to keep you alive? What are you doubting right now? All of the above? Like, right? We think we are more committed to our own joy than God is, period. That's what's going on in our flesh. We think we are more committed to our own happiness than God is. And and that's just simply not true. All throughout scripture, you see, God wants us to be happy in Christ. He wants it so much that even his own cross, he went to it for the joy set before him. That heaven is designed, it is, the church to find their full happiness in Christ and adoring Christ for all eternity. And that even the commands of God are for us to have happiness in Christ. And the enemy has us so duped that we really think God is just trying to spoil our fun. So we get the authority of God wrong. We don't think he loves us. We think he's just spoiling everything. I love me more. Like, God loves me, but it's theoretical. I love me more, though. I am far more trustworthy with how things ought to be. Like, that's the actual problem with idolatry. I'll accept what God says. It's just that my own truth is slightly more true. This is Abby. I call her number three half the time. Especially on a rainy day, we find ourselves at the playground over to the Galleria since it's enclosed. But kudos to Build-A-Bear, by the way. Oh my gosh. Whatever genius says, yeah, we'll, we'll put in a spot in your new mall. Oh, there's a playground there? We want the spot right next to the playground because grandma's going to come and drop some coin. Anyway. So this is Abby. Abby... Uh, is a ninja. By ninja, I don't mean that she's going to kill you, but I mean stealth, sneaky, quiet, when she wants to be. And week, week and a half ago, she, while we're trying to get the dishes out of the dishwasher, she sneaks up real quiet because she's getting into everything and grabs a steak knife. Just real quick grabs and walks a couple of steps away. And you know what you're supposed to do because kids are learning emotions from our faces. You're not supposed to freak out. You're just supposed to just keep the fire. You know, so we did what we're supposed to do. Oh, honey, that's not for you. We just took it and we put it back and it was all fine or whatever. But you know what we did not do? 
We did not scream and run out of the house like Chucky had just come at us. We did, Abby's going to kill us all. And we ran for our lives. That did not happen. Because, yeah, she snapped. She's finally had enough. I screamed for crackers and you didn't give me crackers. This is the last time. Um, we, we didn't scream and run for our lives because there was certain belief about intent, okay? We're watching our baby girl explore everything. Exploration is the foundation of all of her intent right now. Um, her poor three-year-old brother is learning that the hard way. It's like, I didn't want your hot dog. I just wanted to hold it. <laughs> so I stole it from you. Um, so you're not eating a hot dog anymore. So I took it and ran. Um, There was a presumption about her intent because we've seen consistent behavior on her part. that She's exploring everything, every nook and cranny of the house, everything she can possibly touch. Lord, save us all. Explore, 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 explore. So from consistent behavior, we're making an assumption about intent that even when she has a dangerous thing in her hand, it's still about exploration. So there's no reason to, for us to freak out. It's still about exploration. And that's kind of how uh, assumptions where assumptions come from. This is where um, trust comes from. What do I think is somebody's intent? We as individuals and as a church family have got to figure out what do we believe are God's intentions? What are God's intentions when he designs something? Anything, really. All of creation what are God's intentions? What have we seen from repeated behavior? Um, and, and as an aside, this is, this is why the Old Testament matters. Have we ever seen our God do anything but create, love, serve, and save? Because he rebukes us. Why? Because we're choosing sin, which is disastrous for ourselves and for others, Right? So even when he's angry, he's angry at disastrous behavior. He's teaching us who he is. He's showing us who he is so that we don't have to freak out at his commands. We can receive his commands as a blessing and as a protection. And here's how I put it. We can trust God's design for church leadership or anything else because we see how much he loves us. Back to Romans 8. Paul said it this way, the Father gave us the Son, even to a cross. Won't he give us anything else? Is there any other gift that he won't give us after giving us Christ? He has proven his love for us, so why do you and I, we keep doing it. We still have this old nervous tick from our wounds in the past. We keep going, ah, oh, I'm not so sure, oh, I'm not so sure. And Paul is pleading with us, hey, he gave you Jesus. He'll give you everything. He'll give you everything. So as it relates to God designing male eldership, here's my call to you as a saint. God designed it. It's really clear through scripture that he designed it. And I want to encourage you on this issue and on a thousand other topics. God has proven his love toward us. So if he's proven his love toward us, he's proven that he's designed something for our good. He's designed it for our blessing. That doesn't mean we turn our brains off and just accept it and don't study anymore. We keep studying the scriptures our whole life, right? 
Keep talking about it, by all means. But I want to encourage you that our issues, we think we have an issue with a little place in the Bible. We don't have an issue with a place in the Bible. We have issues with the entirety of the Bible. We have issues with trying to really let God be God. Say, Lord, would you please be Lord over me? Would you please be the boss? And God, teach me how to be a sheep. Would you be the chief shepherd? That, that's kind of where we're at. That's what, that's what, trying to, what, what I'm trying to put forward uh, to you guys today. So we've addressed the elephant in the room, and I've gone long. One last slide, because I don't want to let you off the hook in one particular situation. And here's the situation. I want you to look inside yourself and ask this. Are you a Christian who is more shaped by culture than by scripture? And I'm not pointing the finger at you and judging. I just binged a show on Netflix all about medieval castles in England. I watched like seven episodes in a row. So I'm not judging you, okay? It was awesome. And I'm on the fourth episode going, I think I've watched this more than I've read my Bible this week. So you're not alone. But let's ask the question, is my thinking or my behaviors more influenced by culture than by scripture? And I want to call you toward three specific practical things that are going to help you, three rhythms that are going to help you follow Jesus. Join a group. We're just starting them right now. If you're not sure which one would be a good fit for you, come talk to me. Because my wife is the administrator of groups. I know where the groups are at and the group sizes and all of that. Read the Bible each day by yourself or with a friend. Commit yourself to being here on Sunday mornings. I don't know if you've noticed by Pastor Greg going really long. Bible teaching is a big part of Sunday morning. So commit yourself to be here. Read the Bible for yourself. Be in a group. I'm going to pray. Do we have a, um, Rob, do we have an announcement video this week? Awesome. Okay, so I'm going to pray and then we're going to go. All right? Okay. Uh, Lord Jesus, as always, I, I really do pray that anything I've said that is not, that is just of me and it's not of your spirit, I ask you to let it fall away. Um, that it not be a distraction to the brothers and sisters as we hear the word of God and drink it in today. Uh, I pray that the word would have its exact, uh, your desired intent would happen today. Um, that we would, we would um, respond joyfully submitting to scripture. Um, God, help us to love each other really well. Help us to serve each other really well. Um, God, it's not in the content of the sermon today, but I ask for healing, Lord. Uh, we addressed a little bit last week some of the wounds of the past. Um, many of us, God, do have wounds of whether they were called a pastor or an elder or a deacon or whatever. We've, we've had bad experiences because we're humans and we're sinners and we do wrong things or maybe sins of omission where somebody was supposed to step up and lead us and they didn't and, and it hurt in some way. Um, I ask your Holy Spirit to be a God of comfort and to heal. Um, Help us to be a family of healing. Help us to love each other well and serve each other well and be good listeners. Um, God, give us great joy uh, as you grow our faith. In the great name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I love you guys. Have a great week.